You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, this morning, again, we come to this very important point in our study of 1 Timothy because this passage that we're going to see, chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, is the theme verse for Paul's letter to Timothy. And of course, remember that this letter would have been read to the congregations or the house churches that were in Ephesus, so it would have been uh, what they would understand to be the most important part of this particular letter that uh, he wrote. And the, really the focal point of Timothy's ministry to these people. The passage itself then sets the tone for the rest of the letter. So it's thematic, it's the topical center or the hinge point of Paul's letter. Sometimes, you know, when uh, you read a document or something, the purpose of it's going to be even in the title or even in the first uh, line or two, here's why I'm writing this or here's what this document is all about. Oftentimes in Scripture, we see that it may be even toward the end. For example, John's Gospel, he puts his purpose statement way toward the end, all the way at the end of chapter 20. And he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there's a very clear evangelical uh, uh, statement about why he wrote that, but it's placed way toward the end. Here, Paul puts the the focal point right in the middle. And uh, this is fairly typical in certain even passages you might come across that have the uh, the focal point right in the very center. This is um, sometimes called a a chiastic structure based on the, the Greek letter key. It looks like an X. And it's also called an inverse parallel, kind of some technical jargon. But don't be surprised if the purpose statement in a passage or even in a letter like this is not at the very beginning, but maybe in the middle. So the focal point is in the middle. Everything flows to it, and then everything flows back out of it. And uh, so just sort of structurally, this is what's going on in uh, chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. <clears throat> he puts his purpose statement in the middle. Um, Zechariah's great prophecy in Luke chapter 1, if you just stand back and look at that, if you look right in the very middle, what you're going to see is the Abrahamic covenant, which is the focal point of that. That's also structured as an, an inverse parallel with the, the focal point in the middle rather than at the very beginning or at the end, sort of like as a punchline. So house rules for God's church number nine. Live, learn and live the house rules. This is chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So in your outline there, it's uh, pretty basic. 
the church's mandate, the church's mission, and the church's message. Okay? And then I got done with that, I stood back and looked at it, and I thought, well, what's the difference between the mission and the mandate? Nothing. What's the difference between the mission and the mandate and the message? Nothing, because our message is the mandate, and that's also our mission, right? So, you know, most people arrive at the truth. I stumble into it, but that's okay. So, really, we're going to be talking about the main thing is the Word of God being proclaimed and taught. Well, first, the church's mandate, and we start with Paul's hope. Paul, as you know, had left Timothy in Ephesus to minister there, to set things right. He's uh, so far talked about leadership in the church, elders, and then deacons. And before that, he dealt with false teachers in the church and, and their false teachings. He's going to do that again because that's a, that's a huge issue. But uh, he gets the leadership issue straightened out. And now he's going to talk about his uh, uh, what the purpose of the letter is overall. He says, I hope to come to you soon. Um, his major concern is that Timothy, being left alone in Ephesus, would be able to take care of these issues in the church. The gospel is under attack by false teachers. The gospel must be not only preached and taught, but it has to be defended as well. You have to do both things. Um, and it has to be sound or healthy doctrine. It can't be some deviation from apostolic doctrine. And then he says his purpose in 14b through 15a, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Paul wanted Timothy Timothy to have the revelation of God, which is what this is, as to how one ought to behave or live or function in what he calls the household of God. He says one how one ought to behave. This is not just for Timothy, or it's not just applied to Christians in the city of Ephesus at that point in time and at that place. This is the universal marching orders for the church. And by you, by stating it that way, he uh, makes it applicable across all kinds of social and uh, geographical barriers, but also down through the centuries as well. These are the marching orders for the church. And he uses this architectural language of a household. It's a common word in the New Testament to speak of a house or a dwelling. But Paul uses it here to speak metaphorically of the church as a house or a household. That's a really good English word, household, because it puts emphasis on the people within the house. The people and their relationships within the house. And so as Paul uses it here, um, the household of God, he's talking about those who are within the household of God, their relationship to God, but also to each other. It's very important. Paul knows that Timothy needs to hear from God, and Paul knows that this letter is not just his opinion. This is God's own authoritative word for his church, God's dwelling place, God's household. Remember Acts chapter 20, we keep going back to that passage where Paul met with the elders of this church several years before on his way down to Jerusalem. And once again, he said, pay careful attention to yourselves, to these elders, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So this is a very serious issue about what goes on within the household of God. God cares about his church. He cares deeply about it, and so does Jesus Christ. He purchased the church with his own blood. 
Well, then what's Paul's mandate? That Timothy would know how to behave or live and how he could teach other people the same thing within the household of God. Timothy's going to have to communicate this to the rest of the church. And uh, this letter would have been read in these house churches. And uh, we mentioned it once before, but if you go to the very end, Paul's final greeting, he says, grace be with you. Okay, That's the very last thing in the letter. The you there is plural. So clearly this is designed to be communicated and read to the people within these various house churches. And the, this is a how-to manual. God not only tells us the what, he tells us the how-to. We don't get to decide how to do ministry in the church. The Bible comes with its own set of uh, instructions and rules. Um, it's very popular and has been for several decades now for entrepreneurial type church planters to uh, to launch a church plant and then to sever all ties with the past to uh, say things like, well, this is not your grandpa's church. This is not even your daddy's church. We're going to do things very much differently. So they sever ties with the past. And so their methodology can be more attractive to more people. Um, they listen to the latest church planting gurus who write books on church planting, and they usually have a few mega churches, you know, massive churches that have used that methodology to uh, be examples to these younger church planters, and they follow down that same pathway. The problem is, when you do that, you change the method, then you also eventually will change the message, and that's exactly what happens. Paul's method was the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for just a, a, a quick review of that. And we'll see what Paul's philosophy of ministry was. Corinth was a difficult place to minister. He had a tough time there. Um, as we know, they had a lot of issues, a lot of problems in that church. But Paul wasn't really too concerned with uh, what people needed or what people wanted, as we'll see. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, the Apostle Paul says this in his letter to the Corinthian Christians, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay? So the word of the cross, the preaching of the cross, is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. Very common with the church planning efforts. They go around neighborhoods, and they'll, they'll do surveys, you know, and they'll knock on doors and say, what would you like in a church? What do you want in a church? What would, what would encourage you to come to church? And they write that down and then they try to give the people what they want, right? Paul didn't do that. Paul couldn't have cared less what people want. The Jews want signs, right? They wanted miracles. Could Paul do miracles? You bet he could do miracles. He could have built a massive Jewish church in Jerusalem. It would have been a mega, mega church, right? Well, what about the Greeks, the Gentiles? They like wisdom. 
Could Paul stand toe-to-toe with any Greek philosopher and debate them? You bet he could. He was a brilliant theologian and philosopher. But Paul was not about giving people what they want. What he said was, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So be it. But there's a third group of people that Paul is interested in, a subset of each one of these groups. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. He understood that among the Jews there were the called, the elect. And he understood among the Gentiles there was that same group of people. He was not interested in uh, tickling ears and giving everybody what they wanted. He preached the gospel because he knew it was the gospel that was going to draw out the called who would be saved by believing in the gospel. And he says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. The things that people nowadays would say, well, this is these are very important things. Noble birth, powerful people, right? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low. In, you hearing anything? You Arminians, are you hearing anything here? God chose, God chose, God chose the elect, the called. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That passage there takes any concept of human um centeredness in salvation and just takes it right off the table. If if God doesn't call people to salvation, if God doesn't choose people for salvation, that entire passage makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And the ultimate purpose of it all is God gets all the glory, right? This is Paul's method. He doesn't uh, come up ways to please people, tickle their ears. He has one focal point, and that's to preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. So Paul's purpose is to make sure Timothy knows he is to do God's work, God's way. The church is not Burger King. You don't get to have it your way, right? There's The methodology is determined by God, and so is the message. And so the church's mission then is to do God's work God's way because the church belongs to God. He says in... uh Back in First Timothy, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. It may be here that uh, Paul is co-opting some of the language of the uh, pagans of Ephesus. Um, it may also be that he's uh, uh, poking at the uh, idolatry that was practiced there particularly concerning the uh, the temple of Artemis that was dominant over the city of Ephesus. That's a dead God. We serve the living God. And very literally, it's the living God's church. The church is owned by God. It's his. And he says, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the church 
of the truth. Again, he may be, uh, he may be co-opting some of the language or even using some of what they understand uh, about this massive temple that was in uh, Ephesus at the time. The pillar here is possibly a reference to the temple that was in Ephesus, temple of Artemis it was called. Uh, the Romans called her Diana. She was a false god. The pillars were used to hold the structure up, to sustain it. Uh, the church has had the word of God deposited in it. We are saved through the word. We are sanctified through the word. And now we are tasked with a mission of proclaiming that same word and protecting it. And then it's not just the pillar of the truth. It's the buttress or foundation. This is the support or foundation, the word of God, the gospel. And of course, this imagery may be from that temple, this massive building that was there in, uh, in Ephesus that all these people were, uh, were worshiping. Turn in your Bibles to, to, uh, Acts chapter 19. And we'll just do a real quick review of Acts chapter 19 because this is where Paul first had this encounter. Several years before, on his mission trip through Asia, he came to Ephesus and, uh, we're shown here in Acts chapter 19 what he went through there. Um, first verse says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Now, we won't go through all of this, all these details, but he had that encounter with these disciples and he talked to them the real gospel, and we saw then, you see there that the gospel then moves from Jew to Gentile in the final fulfillment of what the Lord had said would happen. You will be my witnesses. He's out there in Gentile country now, out in the nations, and clearly now the gospel moves to these Gentiles. And then down in um, uh, in verse 8, it says, He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. There's a good uh, working definition of how Paul uses this word all, you know, all without Exception or all without distinction? Well, he defines it for you right here in the context. All the residents, which ones? Both Jews and Greeks. His ministry is extending out to the Gentile world. That's where he is and that's where he wants to be. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Again, Paul... If he wanted to, he could have built a massive ministry just around that, and he could have uh, had prayer claws and little pieces and cut them up and sold them to people. He could have made a lot of money and had a massive church. He wasn't interested in that. And then, of course, we have that great story, one of my favorite stories, about the seven sons of uh, Sceva, this uh, Jewish high priest who uh, wanted to take part in that and wound up uh, fleeing out of the house naked and wounded. I like that story. And it says in verse 17, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers 
came confessing and divulging their practices. So Paul's ministry has an impact. These people are being saved. In verse 19 says, And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And here you have in verse 20 the fifth progress report in Acts. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And here's here's what uh, really we're, we're coming to here. Now after these events, this is verse 21, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Paul wanted to go to Rome because Rome was the focal point, the center of Gentile power. And he was going after the Gentiles. But he stays there in Asia. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. He's talk, it's talking about the temple of Artemis, the temple to this goddess. The temple of Artemis um, was a massive structure, and it dominated the city of Ephesus. It eventually was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. It was double the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It had been built once and then destroyed by fire, but when they rebuilt it, um, they rebuilt it with, with, with tremendous um, financing, and uh, it, was, it was carved out of marble. The columns were carved out of marble, and by the time Paul arrived there, this thing was, had been standing there for quite some time, and this cult to the goddess Artemis, or Diana, as the Romans called them, was in full force. Um, it uh, had 127 columns, which were 60 feet high, 4 feet in diameter, carved out of marble. They were arranged in a double row on all four sides, 8 or 9 on the short sides, and 20 or 21 on the long sides. Um, these columns, this whole thing, was uh, over 300 feet long. It was 425 feet in length and 225 feet wide. Again, twice the size of the Parthenon at Athens. Um, and it was hand-carved. There is actually in the uh, British Museum now one of the recovered bases that they that they uh, dug out, hauled it back to the British Museum. It's six feet tall, six feet in diameter, weighs about 19,000 pounds. It's this big cylinder that the columns would have stood on. The buttress probably is what Paul's talking about here. And it's very ornately carved all the way around with all these different Greek gods and things. But uh, this is what was being worshipped then in the city of Ephesus. Paul is impacting these guys' uh, business of selling these little shrines, these little images of the goddess Diana. I suppose, I don't know what people did with them. Maybe they stuck them on the front of their chariot, you know, and they could be driving around with that up there. But uh, this is damaging their business. So back to chapter 19, um, verse uh, 24 a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. They're making a lot of money. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. 
And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trait of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater. You can still... Uh, that. The remnants of that amphitheater are still there in the hillside. You can actually see it on Google Earth. You can go find that city of Ephesus where Paul and these people actually were. Um, and when they heard this, they were enraged, were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion. They rushed into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, the Macedonians who were Paul's companions and travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Good old Paul. Gotta love Paul. Is he salty or what? He wants to be right in the middle of the riot, right? But they wouldn't let him. Fortunately, they held him away from there. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And eventually the whole thing settles down and the people go away. But this could very well be what Paul is playing off of, this well-known temple with the columns supported on the buttresses. And uh, also when he says the living God's church, we don't serve a dead God. We don't serve a dead idol, no matter how magnificent is the structure. We serve the risen Christ who is the true and living God. So the church's mission, the church belongs to God, and the church must protect God's word because the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so then Paul is probably co-opting these terms and redefining these terms, and even doing that when he gets to verse 16, when he says, great Indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. This is, this is Paul saying, in effect, all these idols, they're not great. Artemis is not great. Great, indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. And he uses this uh, very interesting word here. Uh, different translations have it different ways. We confess or by common confession. Uh, here's what we proclaim. Here's what's truly great, great indeed, the mystery of godliness. And of course, he's talking about Jesus Christ. Because what follows, and most of your English translations probably have this uh, verse separated out, so it almost looks like a little poem, you know? This is probably an early confession of the church. Because Paul says, we confess, we commonly confess. This is what we confess. And it's thought by some scholars that this uh, this statement of the person and work of Jesus Christ was also even put to music. So it could have been a very early ancient hymn sung in these house churches in the city of Ephesus. Great indeed, we confess. 
And uh, very literally, it's, and we confess, or by common confession, is the mystery of godliness. Godliness is a word that, that we've seen before, and it really is the combination of of truth and morality together. And they're always together in Scripture. And the greatest example of that, of course, was Jesus Christ. John tells us that early on in his gospel, in his gospel prologue, that... Um, uh, we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He was the perfect example of the godliness that God requires, the righteousness of God, because he was God in humanity. He was that perfect one. And so Paul goes through these six little statements where he confesses or talks about who Jesus Christ truly is. And this is the church's message. And it's a, it's a great confession. And this is probably, again, would have been interesting to hear it sung within a, a congregation. They did not have copies of the Word of God. So a, a, a very concise statement like this, various elements of it would have been made, um, if it was put in the form of a confession, it would have become very portable for them. They could have memorized it in church because they, they didn't, uh, probably most of them couldn't even read. They didn't have copies of scripture. They uh, couldn't read, but they could hear. So they would go and they would hear this and somebody probably condensed the teaching of Christ down and uh, probably a confession, probably even put to music. But the first thing he says, he was manifested in the flesh. Now, some of the older... Um, uh, English translations like the older King James even say God was manifested in the flesh. Those are based on manuscripts that are, that are later manuscripts. And there's a very interesting uh, issue going on here. We won't get into it or solve it, but uh, whether or not it actually says he or he who, or does it say God? Well, either way, it's going to come out the very same way. This is a statement of the deity of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of Christ. He was manifested in the flesh. The word manifest, obviously, to show or to reveal oneself. And again, back to John, John chapter 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, right? So this is a statement of the incarnation, but it's also a statement of the humanity of Jesus Christ. And it was revealed. In 2 Timothy 1.10, Paul also says, now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He was revealed, he says. This goes way back into the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 7, very familiar verse. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. The word means God with us, as you well know. And again, very familiar from Christmas time, Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Clearly a statement of the incarnation of the eternal God, just like John develops in his gospel prologue. He talks about the Word. The Word was with God and how the Word is eternal. And then he, it's John's version of the Christmas story in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Even clear back, uh, we've already seen this. Paul makes mention of this back in uh, chapter 1, verse 15 
when he says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's a statement. It's easy to kind of run across these statements, but that's a statement of pre-existence. The same thing when Jesus talks about, I was sent by the Father. You and I can't say that. You know, you and I can't say uh, that we were sent by the Father. Now, we can say it from the standpoint of in our lifetime here and now, uh, being sent to do a mission for God or whatever. We do have that. But Jesus said, I was sent by the Father. That's a statement of, of pre-existence, okay? And so he was manifested in the flesh. And then he was vindicated by the Spirit. One of the little interpretive things here, does it mean vindicated in the Spirit or by the Spirit? Maybe the best understanding of it is by the Spirit, capital S, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was at work during the entire ministry of Jesus Christ. Um, he was at work, of course, as we know, um, in his, uh, his conception. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. At his baptism, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So there you have a Trinitarian focus there, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all in that one event. And of course, Hebrews 9.14, at his crucifixion, this is a, a verse that's just uh, incredible to me. The writer of Hebrews says, how much more, and of course, as we have been, been learning, Hebrews is about the superiority of Christ in all these different ways. And he's, the writer says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. At his crucifixion, the Spirit of God was involved, offering up his life without blemish to God. That is some very deep water, okay? But we're told the eternal Spirit offered himself. He did that through the eternal Spirit. And then the Spirit was involved, of course, in his resurrection. Um, the, John, Paul says in Romans 1, 4, uh, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God, declared to be certified, absolutely uh, without any kind of question, certified and declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proved that he was exactly who he said he was. And Paul acknowledges the Spirit's work in that. And again, in Romans 8.11, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, Paul says. His, the Spirit was also involved, as we saw in His crucifixion, but also in His ascension to the Father. John 16.7, Jesus Himself says, He's in the upper room, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, the Spirit... But if I go, I will send him to you. So the the uh, ascension of Christ to the Father was critical, and then he sent the Spirit down. The Spirit is involved in his entire ministry, vindicated by the Spirit. And then, see, seen by angels. This is also really fascinating. <clears throat> angels are always involved in 
Christ and then the ministry that he has. Even back in eternity, we're told in the Old Testament, Psalm 148-2, Deuteronomy 32, angels worshipped him in eternity. Angels were involved in the annunciation of his birth, but also his conception. Remember the angel Gabriel came to Mary? He announced the conception of Christ. When he was born, the angels sang praises to God at his birth, Luke chapter 2. And even after his temptation, after Satan left him, angels came and ministered to him. They announced his resurrection. They were there at his ascension. And, by the way, when he returns, it says in 2 Thessalonians 1, they will accompany him in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. These are formidable creatures who attend Christ in every aspect of his ministry. And then in Revelation chapter 5, verse 11, what a passage about what angels long to do and love to do. This is John's basically taking us to a scene in heaven. There's the creatures around the throne, and uh, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. By the way, fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth, still identifiable as various people groups, even up in heaven. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign, where? On the earth. Okay? Different issue, but uh, it's right there. Now listen to this. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He was seen by angels all through eternity. They are around him, they attend to him, they minister to him, and they praise him in heaven. And then D, of course, proclaimed among the nations. Christ was, is, and will be proclaimed among the nations until he returns. Uh, sometimes this word nations is translated Gentiles, but here again we have the, the issue of the extension of the gospel into the nations. He He... He is preached. He is to be preached. It's one of the, the the main mandates to the church is to proclaim the word of God, preach the word of God. He commands his disciples to make disciples of all the nations, Matthew 28, 19. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, and uh, he was so committed to reaching Gentiles for Jesus Christ that as we saw, um, <clears throat> he got that kind of a backhanded compliment from that guy in Ephesus, you know, talking about uh, all who lived in Asia heard the word, and and this guy Paul is taking people away from our business. Well, that's a compliment. He didn't mean it that way, but it really truly was. So the proclamation among the nations. And, of course, if the word of God is proclaimed, it's going to be believed. This is E, believed on in the world. The result of the preaching of Christ throughout the world is that he will be be believed, he'll be trusted for who he is and for what he accomplished. Paul's opponents in Ephesus, they were angry at him because they were losing customers in their idle trade. Paul didn't care. He was there to preach and teach the word of God because he understood, as he said in Romans 1.16, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That's why he preached it. He wasn't interested in tickling people's ears, didn't care what people wanted to hear, didn't, wasn't concerned about meeting felt needs. He had one mission, one command, and that was to preach the gospel.
Faith comes from hearing, he said, and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. He uses the word rhema there. The word rhema is simply a speech or an oratory. People have done some strange things with that little verse. I have heard some of the oddest interpretations coming from false teachers talking about a rhema word as if it's some sort of a super-duper magical word. It simply is a speech, all right? How hard is this? Faith comes from hearing a speech about Christ, right? It's just that simple. You want people to come to Jesus Christ? Tell them about Jesus Christ. That's what Paul said. People believe on him when they hear his message, believed on in the world, and then finally taken up in glory. Christ ascended to be at the right hand of this Father in heaven, and it was demonstration by God that the Father was pleased with him and his work of sacrifice on the cross. Okay, Perfect life, atoning death, fully satisfied the Father on behalf of his people. The heart of the church's message is the gospel. The heart of the gospel is Jesus Christ. And this little creed, or probably a little hymn here, uh, just captures that. It even has a kind of a chronological progression to it as you walk right through it. So um, this is the mission of the church. It's the mandate of the church. And, of course, it's the message of the church as well. And it's also the focal point and the heart of this little letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. Um, make sure that uh, you learn and know and do the uh, what he wants you to do in the church because the church is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.